Uh, just a, a point before we get into God's word today. I think we need to pray for our nation. I believe that in part we're in the setting and situation that we're in today because the church has failed. And so it's our responsibility as a church to follow the Second Chronicles passage and to just come down onto our knees and our hearts and ask God for him to do whatever is necessary to bind us together as a union and to do away with the difficulties that seem to be there. Uh, God loves all of us. He loves our nation, and so we need his help. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can call out to you as the prophets of all did, where they said, let justice roll. We look for you, Lord, to bring truth into our world and to allow us to live in that truth and to depend upon you. So today we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would hear that prayer and that you would anoint your word, that it might go out into hearts that need to be brought to you. For we pray all of this in your name. Amen. This is the fourth week of Truish, where we've looked at the concepts of Jesus and the gray areas that try to be forced upon us. We looked at the purpose for life and how you can slide quickly out of the light into the gray. And we talked about the gospel and how that is such an all-encompassing fact of truth. I had a young man who's a pastor that's a friend of mine texted me this morning very early, and he said, I'm about to preach, and I'm going to talk about this. Am I doing anything wrong with the gospel? I thought, praise God, he's asking. Let me see if I can find Alan. <laughs> but you know, the fact that there's a, a young man who has in his heart a desire to communicate the truth. So when we look at Jesus and purpose for life and gospel, realize that all of those are contained in the word. Here's what one person said. If we're going to declare the gospel of Jesus to a world that rejects him outright, we're going to have to start by asserting the truth of the book which tells us about him in the first place. You have to believe the Bible is 100% true if you're saying that Jesus is 100% true. If you are following Jesus Christ, then you're following everything that the Bible says as absolute truth. No gray areas, no contradictions, nothing like that. And that is a fact. So as soon as you accept that fact, this word can set you free. It has every answer to every question that you could ever pose. It's living, it's alive. It's something that you can go to on a regular basis with all of your concerns for life, and you can lay it out right there. But there has been an effort from the very beginning to destroy this written word because it contains truth, and it forces men and women to make a choice. And that choice is God or not God. And that's the choice that each of you either has made or should make in life. Beginning in the year 284 through 305, the emperor Diocletian 
did everything he could to destroy the word of God in the Roman Empire. We jump forward to the 1500s, thousands of Bibles were burned, an attempt to get rid of the word of God. And then Voltaire in the 1700s, the French philosopher who was a deist, it is said that he did more to destroy the faith of Europe than anyone before him or since him because he was going after the word of God. You see, if you can destroy the word of God or at least make it seem as though you have, then you can be destroyed in your faith. If you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, then any aspect of your faith that is weak will be called into question, and you have nowhere to go to find the answer because you've denied the one place that has the answer. So we need to be more in, well informed as followers of Christ, and then we need to learn how to live out that information as it changes us. So I'm going to give you some information. This is just a download of information, but then as we get down to near the end of the message, we're going to bring in a text that tells you how to take this information and what to do with it. Okay, so you ready? Now, two of you are. Okay, thank you. Everybody's ready. Here we go. One of the ways to try to destroy the Bible is with historical criticism. And what that means is this. That when you look at any document from antiquity, you have to ask three questions. The first is, who wrote it and when? That's one question. When did they write it? Secondly, how many copies of that original, not the original itself, but how many copies are available? And then thirdly, when was the first copy of that original discovered? How much time existed between the original writing, and the discovery of a copy of it? Those are the questions you ask. So we start off with someone that's well-known, like Aristotle. In 343, he wrote one of his great works, and the first time a copy of it was located was 1,500 years later, and there are only five copies. You ask anyone in the literary world or the historic world, a bibliography, and they will say that is a work of Aristotle. Five copies, 1,500 years between the original and the copy. You go to Homer, the writing of the Odyssey in the 8th century. There are now 1,750 copies of that that have been located, but the earliest location between the time written and the time found is 2,200 years. But the Odyssey is accepted as a work of Homer. There's just no doubt about it. All of these are acceptable. But the Word of God is not acceptable to those who follow these principles. And I want to ask why. And here's what you need to know. Over a period of 40 years, or over a period of 1,500 years, 40 people... These were their backgrounds, military general, prime minister, fisherman, cupbearer, tent maker, shepherds, kings, farmers, priests, poets, scribes, traitors, embezzlers, adulterers, murderers, and auditors. They wrote 
from the wilderness, prisons, and islands in Africa, Asia, and Europe in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Okay, so we're not talking about Homer or Aristotle. We're talking about 40 different people over 1,500 years who brought all this information together. And the earliest manuscripts discovered were in 120 A.D., which is just a small gap of years from the time written to the time found. Now, there are a limited number of copies available today, only about 18,000. Now, let me tell you, if I look at that and I see what they've already approved with Aristotle and Homer and many others, and I look at the Bible and say, you're kidding, 1,500 years, 40 people from a multiple number of backgrounds from three different continents in three different languages in all sorts of different settings, and there are 18,000 copies of that available, and not a single one of them are in contradiction to another. That couldn't be the Word of God. You see the irony of this? You see the ridiculousness of this? Now, you need to know that so that when someone comes to you and says, well, it couldn't be the Word of God, you say, well, is Homer's work Homer's? You know, is Aristotle's work Aristotle? You know, look at God's Word. Look what happened here. That God, in His infinite wisdom, beginning with His conversation and creation of Adam and Eve, brings a string of light through the entire Old Testament into the New Testament about Jesus Christ himself and explains to us who Jesus is, what our purpose in life is, and what the gospel is, and puts them all together. And the Bible says he breathed into Adam and gave him life. He breathed into those prophets and spoke through holy men of old as the Spirit led them. And the apostles themselves say in Corinthians that we were led to teach by what we were taught from the Holy Spirit. See, God breathed into this. The Bible is not a book that is stagnant, that is on a shelf in a library. And this is the hard thing for you and for me to grasp is the fact that the Bible is alive. It's not a book. It's, it's the living breath of God. And so whatever it says is absolute. There's no equivocation. There's no gray in the Bible. And there are no contradictions in the Bible. And some of you are going, well, wait a minute, I know a few. No, you don't. You just don't understand how to deal with an apparent contradiction. Because that's the second thing that happens when you move past historical criticism and you move past literary criticism. Then you're going to move into, well... I think there's some things that contradict. Here we call upon the law of non-contradiction. You know what that is. That something cannot be A and not A in the same place at the same time. There is no contradiction. You can't have that. And there's nowhere in Scripture that that occurs. Well, someone might say to you as you're conversing with them, well, what about the angels at the tomb? Because you see, Matthew and Mark said they're just one angel. Luke and John say they're two angels. That's a contradiction. No, it's not. How many of you ever saw in 2008 the movie Vantage Point with Dennis Quaid? Do you remember that one? That was the attempted assassination of a president. And Quaid is the investigator. 
and he's interviewing people who had witnessed what had happened. And every single witness from their vantage point saw something different. And they reported on what they saw. And not a single one of the witnesses' statements agreed. And people would say, well, if they didn't agree, then nobody could be true. No, this is what you don't understand from vantage point. Matthew and Mark had asked the question, who rolled the stone away? That was the basic question they were dealing with in their communication with those with whom they were speaking. And they say, an earthquake happened and an angel came and rolled the stone away. Both of them report that. They didn't say this was the only angel. Only one angel came. They said an angel rolled the stone away. Luke and John are more interested in who took the body. And so each time that they reflect on the angelic presence, they say there were two angels in that tomb that Peter and John saw. Now, if there were two, there was at least one. And the fact that there was one does not mean that there weren't two. How many wise men were there? Oh, no, 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 no. I knew I'd get you in that one. <laughs> there were three gifts. There were three gifts that the wise men brought. How many wise men? We have no idea. We do not know how many there were. There could have been 100 wise men, but they only brought three gifts. You see, and those are the things that you need to understand. There's no contradiction in the Bible. The Bible is clear. Where there are things that we don't understand... At times, it's because God did not intend for us to understand. I mean, read parts of Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. Don't tell me you understand them, because I don't. Now, I believe them, but I don't understand them. I don't need to understand the truth of God. The secret things belong to him alone. But whatever he wants to reveal to me, he will if I am seeking him while he may be found. So I'm going to God as often as possible, asking my questions, looking for answers, and believing that those answers are in the Scriptures. Now, the principle of truth is always there. No, he didn't live in the 21st century. And so some of the answers and questions there are based on a cultural situation and on differences, but the principal concept of truth is through it all, and you can reach into Scripture and find what you need to deal with in life. Forty writers, 16 occupations, 1,500 years, no contradictions. I just love that. That just bolts my, my belief and, and my understanding of what God intended to do. He did not intend to send his son and then help us try to figure out what that meant. He laid it clearly. The Westminster Confession, most published confession and printed confession in history, says this, that the, the Word of God, everything is contained in the Word of God that you and I need for faith and life and salvation. And it's either expressly set down or by good and necessary consequence can be deduced from the Scriptures. Sounds to me like you need a Bible with you all the time. You know, praise God for the apps. Because, and I'm serious about that, 
because I know wherever I am, I don't have to try to find my Bible because in this culture, you always know where your phone is. So I just pull my phone out and I go to the app and if I have a question, I go in there and I find the scripture I was thinking about and I read that scripture. So I'm carrying the living word with me everywhere I go. Not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a sinner. And I need God's continued forgiveness. I want to thank him and praise him. What a great worship that was this morning that we could, could praise him and think about him. And now, here we are listening to what he says about his word. With this kind of information in hand, here's the challenge to you. How many of you have ever had someone say, why do you believe in the Bible? How many of you ever had that happen? Why do you believe in the Bible? A whole bunch of us in here. Here's your answer. Why do you not believe in the Bible? You see, the Bible doesn't need defense in the sense of us trying to prove that it's true. You don't have to prove it because it is true. But you do, according to Peter, have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And that answer needs to be more than just simple concepts. It needs to be thought out and brought together. So when someone says, why do you believe in the Bible? My first response is, why don't you? Tell me the reasons that you don't believe in the Bible, and then we'll go to the Bible and deal with your reasons. Because you always keep debates, conversations about the Bible. You keep them between the individual and the Bible, not between the individual and you. Because the Bible doesn't need your help. He takes care of that himself because it's alive. It's a live debate that's taking place as long as you know how to deal with that. Now, we're called to love Jesus, to pursue his purpose, to communicate his gospel, none of which can be accomplished without the word. So you have to have the word. So let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're only looking at three verses because these are verses that Paul communicated to Timothy as Timothy is beginning his new ministry. And he's trying to help him. Let's read what he said. Paul says in verse 12, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 13, While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. So three thoughts that go into how we take this information and live it out. It's, it's not good enough just to know it. Now you have to be able to express it in your daily life. First, verse 12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What a draw card to become a Christian. You know, accept Jesus today. Raise your hand now. Get ready for persecution. I wish we taught it like that. Because let me tell you, when you are truly following Jesus Christ, 
and you're sacrificing areas in your life to be obedient unto him, and you're not afraid, you're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation, and you know that. When you're able to do that, don't you think that the evil one is really upset with you? And he's going to do whatever he can to get you to deny that that you just confessed. So if he can convince you that the word is not the word, then he'll take away that persecution if you buy into it. And you can live a nice, nice, happy, meaningless life that may end in nothing. But knowing the word of God and knowing that you're going to be persecuted brings this thought to mind. Jesus knew when he left heaven to come to earth, to become a man, to live for us, that his destination was the cross. That he would go through all forms of suffering, emotional, physical, spiritual, all of those would be a part of this 33 years that he lived on the earth. And those last three and a few months in his public ministry, he was certainly persecuted physically and spiritually more than any other time. But it didn't stop him. It couldn't stop him. Because he understood the first principle of being able to do what we're called to do, and that is don't quit. Don't quit when persecution comes. Paul says it in another place. It is appointed unto you to believe in Jesus and to suffer on his behalf. If the one who saved us suffered for us, and told his disciples, you are going to suffer on my behalf, why would we not understand that suffering is part of the Christian life? Now, it comes at different forms, at different levels of intensity to all of us, but it's going to come. And learning how to receive that and not say, well, I quit. I'm just leaving this. I can't do this anymore. No, this is the time to step up. The couple who take Linda and me to Moldova each year. Mihai and Sylvia Rachi. They are Moldovan. And they lived in that region before it became Moldova when it was under communist rule. Mihai's job was a smuggler. He smuggled Bibles into Romania and the area now called Moldova. Boxes would be delivered surreptitiously at night and he would hide them in his home and then he would go out and he would distribute them in different ways. And he knew that persecution would come, that they would be looking for someone just like him and if they found him, he would be taken away forever into the Siberian prisons. But he kept doing it because he said, this is what God called me to do. This is my purpose. I do it for my Jesus because I understand the gospel. So one night, he says, I was on a train, and I had a box of these Bibles with me because it was important that I deliver them to another town uh, long enough away that I had to take a train. And someone came by my little room there on the train and said, the KGB is on board. They're looking for people with Bibles. He said, okay, well, I can't get caught with the Bibles. I can always do this another time and go to that city. So he opened the window and took the box and threw it out and closed the window. Now they're not going to catch him. 
The wall comes down. A couple years later, the USSR dissolves. And Mihai is going through that little town. Didn't even know the name of it when he dropped off these Bibles in that box from the train. And he's holding a meeting, a gathering of Christians. And he starts talking about how wonderful it has been to be able to distribute Bibles. And so he says, so how did you come to Jesus? And this man stands up in the back and says, let me tell my story. He said, okay, what is it? He said, I got saved a few years ago. He said, how did it happen? I found a box by the railroad track, and it had Bibles in it. And I picked up the Bible, and I started reading it, and I got saved. So then I gave the Bibles to everybody else in the town, and all sorts of people got saved. And Mihai's going, you know, praise God for persecution. They could have caught me, but instead, God had a plan. He had a different plan. See, nothing was going to stop Mihai from distributing Bibles. And even today, with one kidney and a high risk at his life, he goes back every single year to Romania and to Moldova to share the gospel with people, to see how all of these that he influenced over the years were going. Right now, you can pray for him because he has pneumonia, and he's in high risk. But he's a man who wouldn't quit. Don't quit. You can quit anything else you want, but don't quit the gospel. Don't quit what Jesus has done for you. Don't quit your marriages so that nobody walks out here saying, he said we could do this. (laughs) You know, don't quit the relationships that God has given you. Don't quit being what he's called you to be. Secondly, you need to be able to defend your position. Think of Jesus again. There never was a time when he said, To those who did not believe, well, you know what? We can just agree to disagree, pilgrim. He didn't say that. He always told the truth. And people did not want to receive the truth, but he still told the truth. He was at total odds with the Jewish understanding of the coming of Messiah because Messiah was standing right there in front of them. And they wouldn't hear what he had to say. He didn't apologize for who he was. He promoted the exclusivity of himself. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. It doesn't get any bolder than that. Now, in love, we communicate those same concepts, those same truths to everybody everywhere. Don't judge their sinfulness. God will take care of that. Love them as a person Don't agree with their sinful behaviors, but communicate to them the truth of who he is. You have to be able to defend what you believe. Again, Peter, be ready to give an answer. That means, can you defend what you believe? There's so many who cannot. They're afraid to. I told this story years ago here, but basically a new congregation that there was a time in Russia when it was certainly illegal to have private Bible studies, and once the study was taking place in this home, and two Russian soldiers came and knocked on the door, and they walked in, and the people were frightened. They knew, we're caught. What can we do? And one of the guards said, okay, here's an out. If you're not a Christian, you can leave. (laughs) Some of the people left. He said it again. I'm going to say it one more time. 
If you're not a Christian, you can leave. A few more left. He said, all right, so all of you are saying you are believers. And they're standing there, not ready to quit. They're going to defend the gospel by being willing to die for it. He walks back to the front door and he bolts the door. He comes over and he puts his weapon down and he says, all right, let's worship Jesus. You see, when you're ready to defend the gospel, you're ready to die for the gospel. Jesus died for the gospel because this promise is there. We're going to be raised, so we shouldn't fear dying, not for the sake of the gospel. Thirdly, you need to learn enough to be dangerous. You know, just enough to be able to have somebody go, oh, never thought of that. Now, again, you're doing it in love, but I'm going to take a secular story and show you the principle behind it. Um, this is a story of a man who is one of the most famous imposters in history. Actually, there was a book written called The Great Imposter. Listen to this brief account of his story. Ferdinand de Mara, for him, impersonation was about filling in gaps, picking up the pieces where a job was needed, whether he had the training for it or not. Early in his career, Damara was a soldier in the military. Not happy where that was taking him, he decided to fake his own suicide in 1942. He assumed the name of Robert French, then began teaching college psychology at a Pennsylvania university. Every now and then, he would move to a different university position under a variety of names. Eventually, though, he was caught and given jail time, not for impersonating anyone, but for deserting the army years earlier. Out of jail and with the headlines, the Korean War, plastered across the newspapers, DeMar decided to assume the name of an acquaintance, a surgeon named Joseph Sear. Under his new identity, he got a job on the Canadian destroyer, the HMCS Cayuga, and shipped to Korea. Unfortunately, he turned out to be the only surgeon on the ship. Remember, he's an imposter. He ended up performing more than 16 major surgeries with no formal training, and all of his people survived. In his biography, he claimed, here's his answer, here's our application. He simply read a surgery textbook before operating. That was it. He just read a textbook, here's how you do appendectomy. Okay, let's go do an appendectomy. Isn't that ridiculous? But he got away with it. Let me tell you, I have a book for you. I have a book that you can go and you can read how-to in that book. And you will live as a result of applying that. Because you just need to know enough. You need to know Jesus is the only Son of God. You need to know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one that we worship one God in three persons, that Jesus was the God-man 100%, that Jesus actually walked on the earth, that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was dead, he was buried, that he was raised from that dead, and he actually walked on the earth. You want to know whether it's true or not? Let's go back to statistics. Over 500 people witnessed this. But in our society today, we don't move off of truth, off of facts. 
we move off of emotion, even when emotions are true. But facts are better than emotion. So if you're going to defend the faith, your faith is emotional to you, but it better be truthful to you also. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up as we close with the fourth thought. You need to rest everything, every defense of the faith, every answer to every question asked you, it rests on one thing, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he was resurrected, and the Apostle Paul says he was, then that makes the Bible true. Why do I say it that way? Because Christ himself acknowledged the Old Testament as God's word. He spoke in the New Testament about it being the word of God. The word of God appears over 44 times in the New Testament. But it's all based on one thing. If he was raised from the dead, then he's God. If he wasn't, he's not. And all the evidence that has been presented shows us that he did rise from the dead. And he did it for you and for me. So what do you believe? You believe in Jesus? You believe in the purpose in life that he gave you? You believe in the gospel? Then believe that he will be with you through the word to defend it, to propagate it, and to live it for his own glory. But he's waiting on you to yield to that. Why don't you stand with me and let's close with a song that helps us remember what we believe. Mm -hmm.